Hey, uh, welcome to church this morning. It is so good to have you here. If we've never met, I'm James, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are uh, all through the month of January talking about the grand, grand story of the Bible and the overarching uh, way that God tells his story through the scriptures. And so each week, uh, I'm preaching the entire Bible. And uh, so the first week, we did it in a certain way. It looked like the classical reformed way. The last week, uh, we did it in uh, like a five-act play kind of way. And today, it's, it's a much simpler version. Uh, but it's kind of asking the question of like, who's in charge? And it really kind of backs all the way up to the question of like, uh, what is God's point of himself? Uh, if that... That sh- I'm sure that doesn't make sense, but do you, do you ever wonder like why God exists? Like what's God's drive? What's his purpose in life, right? And, and it, it might sound weird, but God's actual purpose in his own existence, which I assume he gave himself or has in his own eternal non-beginningness, <laughs> uh, God's per- point, the, God's purpose is to glorify himself which you would think would be super egotistical, right? Like God always wants everything about everything to glorify himself. But God can't actually, it'd be impossible for God to think more highly of himself than he is because he's infinitely great, infinitely everything, right? So you can't ever say too much greatness about God or think too much greatness about God. And so God's perfectly free to say that everything in the world should exist and operate in order to bring glory to myself. And when you think that way, and you think about creation in that way, there's kind of like, why did God make everything? God made everything to glorify himself. Your existence, my existence, the existence of the things around us in outer space and anything that's close to us. Um, You know, the Green Bay Packers, all of it was created... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to come very close to perfection, but lose in the same... But they... <laughs> like anyone cares. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's the convicting thing from today. So, um, so I want to talk about this story, though, about how God glorifies himself. And when he's glorifying himself, the question really becomes, who's in charge? Right? Because the person at the top of everything, uh, if it's God is the person who receives all the glory or all the credit for everything. So the structure for the story this week is actually three parts. It's theocracy, monarchy, and then Christocracy. Uh, Theocracy, monarchy, Christocracy. And those are words that uh, tend to be thrown around a little bit in in, uh, like extremism places today. Theocracy sounds like Uh, We're going to follow a religious law like um, uh, other religions might, or or you might hear on the news things like references to things like a Sharia law or an extreme Christianity uh, or extreme version of Christianity where the the Bible is turned into a new set of laws and the New Testament is turned into a new set of laws. I don't think that's what the New Testament was intended for. But uh, the the way that this is uh, expressed in the scripture though in theocracy to explain that is that there is that God is in charge, but He operates on earth through prophets who speak on God's behalf and explain what God is about and what He's doing. Then there's monarchy, which is like we know it's the something that we have invented in order to sell tabloid magazines when they reject their titles and move to Canada. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> 
I'm, I am uh, not a citizen here if you're here for the first time, and so I'm actually loyal to the queen and very confused why they're marrying commoners. But uh, <laughs> as soon as the whole thing stops being ridiculous, it doesn't make any sense. The ridiculousness of it is what makes sense. So anyways, uh, then there's Christocracy, which is uh, Jesus, uh, an understanding of Jesus that sees Jesus as establishing his kingdom or the kingdom of God through his time on earth, his death and resurrection, and he continues to reign in that way. So that's kind of, I'm going to read a lot of scriptures, and we're going to walk all the way through the Bible story uh, today, a whole bunch of um, maybe obscure stories that you don't know about uh, in the middle of the stories. Half a million people die. We're just going to roll right over that, uh, and, and just kind of, um, so there might be some things where you're like, what is going on there? But if you use um, the Uversion app, there's a little events tab on the bottom on the Uversion app if you don't use a paper and a Bible. Uh, but you can actually click on those links and be able to look at the larger story or check it out later this afternoon or something like that. But there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff that we're going to fly right by today in order to talk about the entirety, or the entirety of the Bible. So let's start with theocracy. God creates everything at the beginning of, of what we know to be the existence of time. God exists in perpetuity uh, before anything, like there was no beginning to God and there is no ending to God. And that's difficult for us to understand because everything about us understands the world and material uh, formation moving forward, right? Like time is measured by the relative function of existing beings and how they are to what, like, it's three o'clock because the time on the thing is like this. It's a whole year because we've done a rotation around the sun, right? If we didn't have physical things, we don't have a way of measuring time. And so before there's any physical things, and you thought like this morning, you won't need a master's degree to understand this sermon. And here you are, like, if there's no physical existence, then there is no time. So God can exist in perpetuity before the beginning of time. And that's actually really simple. <laughs> so, so before anything exists, God is... And then God creates, and he creates all of the things. And then God chooses a people to express who he is to all of humanity. Humanity is who he chooses to hold the place of special honor in all of his creation in bearing his image. And they bear his image in order that they might be the most particular uh, glorifying agent of God. Humans have the ability to glorify God in a way that nothing else in creation has because of their image-bearing status uh, in comparison to all the rest of creation. So humans have a special relationship with God, and God starts setting up, here's how you're going to operate together in the Old Testament so that when you're operating and in relationship with each other, uh, with outsiders, and with God, all of those relationships will function in a way that glorifies God. And the Israelite people begin to follow God, and their story takes some twists and turns. They end up uh, being an entire race of people, an entire nation of people who are enslaved in Egypt. And then God frees them using a, a prophet named Moses. And Moses is actually the guy who's kind of the first like, major, major prophet uh, that comes to the people and says, this is what God says. This is what God says. This is what God says. And God meets with Moses in a way, face to face, tells him, write this down, write this down. This is important. You need to know these things. And if you can imagine, now there's all sorts of like new rules that the people are living by. They were living in Egypt. 
and now they're living kind of in the desert, but there's a new way of living and new functions and new ways of getting food and new ways of relating to each other and new ways of deciding when you move and when you stay. And so Moses, in Exodus chapter 18, we'll put this on the screen for you, Moses actually does this every day once they're living out in the, wo- in the wilderness. Uh, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. And apparently Moses did this six days a week. When, the fa- when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge for all these people that stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses answers him, because the people come to me to seek God's will, meaning what God wants. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties, and I inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So they have this law, but as soon as you have a law, there's people wondering, well, what about this over here? And what about this over here? And what about this over here? Right? And there's all these questions that people have. Uh, it, it, it sometimes gets a little bit hilarious there was uh, um, there's examples in the like in the era of when jesus was alive where they had a rule over because you can't work on a sabbath day so they had a maximum number of steps you could take away from your home on a sabbath day because more than ten thousand steps is excessive <laughs> apparently my fitbit tells me that rarely but it tells me that <laughs> but it is uh excessive and so they would actually the day before the sabbath go and put food at a place halfway to where they wanted to walk if they wanted to walk 13,000 steps to their friend's house and so they'd walk the 10,000 steps and they'd be like well I can't walk any further away from my house than 10,000 steps but oh there's some food here I'm going to sit down and eat and where do you eat at home apparently this is where I live now and now I can walk further do you see that there's no law against moving but then I just moved and then the next day they would move home I guess or move back to the same place but it's just that kind of like if there's soon as there's a law you're trying to figure out ways around it that's how laws work right at tax time we think about that how do I get around this right like uh, so my dog is a dependent but but Moses becomes the sole judge for the people of Israel because the people are trying to figure out like here's the rules But how do we follow those rules? How do we interact with uh, God according to his law? And it's not like they had malcontent or intentions that were evil. They wanted to glorify God, and they wanted to make sure the things they were doing were the right things. And so God sent prophets, Moses being the first of many, many prophets. And then Moses leads them up to the doorway of the promised land, and another prophet takes over named Joshua, And Joshua actually leads them into the promised land, and the nation of Israel becomes a nation with land. The problem is there were people living on that land, and it's prime land, and so just geography-wise, which we won't get into today, it's land that everybody wants. To this day, it's land that everybody wants. And so they ended up in these fights with other people. And so there's these books like, Uh, of Moses, and then there's a book in the Bible of Joshua, and then there's a book in the Bible of Judges. And the Judges became people who were de facto leaders in Israel, but most of them had to operate in violent ways. So they were like the prophets of God, except they had to do a lot of wars and fights. And in the middle of that, there's a prophet, one of the major ones, named Gideon. And Gideon 
ends up fighting off the Midianites, and, and he just has these battles with different people. And he's not a perfect person at all. None of these prophets or none of these judges are perfect people. Um, they all have faults, and Gideon has faults right after what I'm about to share today. But uh, Gideon actually does this great battle in the book of Judges, and we'll put this on the screen for you too. But the Israelites say to Gideon, we want you to rule over us and your son and your grandson because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They want Gideon to become their king. But, God, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Because they're operating in a theocracy, and God set it up this way, and said, you won't have a king like the people or the nations around you. I am your king. You will be my servant. I will tell you what to do and how to live. And you will operate in the way that I tell you to. But people living in a particular society see every other country has a king. Why don't we have a king? And you can imagine them having difficulty understanding as generations go by, as they get more and more generations removed from guys like Moses, more and more times they're interacting with other countries as they're coming through. The Promised Land was like a major, it's where Israel is today if you're familiar, but it's a major thoroughfare. Before there were airlines, uh, you would either have to take a boat across the water there or you'd have to go through Israel to get in between the major continents that grouped up there. And so they want Gideon, because he does this great battle, to become their king. And there's this rumbling and this beginning of this desire where they're like, we want a king like everybody else has a king. But it is the beginning of an actually like a sinful desire because God has set himself up as I am the king. I am in charge. Everything about everything glorifies me. And the people are saying, but everybody else has a king. What would it hurt for us to have a king? Like surely God didn't mean, right? Which is always the, the beginning of the end of the story. Surely God didn't mean, surely God didn't mean this, surely God didn't mean that. And so they say, surely God didn't mean we should be weird. Surely God didn't mean that everybody else gets to have a king, but we don't. Our tabloids are super boring. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> like There's nothing, no scandal that we can create to be interested in because we don't have a king. And so there's this beginning of this rumbling as, as Israel does have major leaders because they're actually having to bring the people together to fight battles. There are people that are oppressing them and people that they have to fight off. There are other nations that they have to engage with in trade and different things. And so they start wondering, why aren't we functioning like these other countries? These other countries are functioning that way. We want to function that way. It moves all the way forward to a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel is kind of the prophet that is in charge when Israel actually transitions uh, from a theocracy to a monarchy. And this being a major transition in the history of God's relationship with his people. Up till this point, God relates to his people through a prophet or multiple prophets. And the prophet at this time is Samuel. And so Samuel was kind of in charge. Uh, and the, there's, if you look in your Bible, there's actually two books, First and Second Samuel. And Samuel begins to grow old, so he appointed his sons as Israel's leader. 
And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at a town called Beersheba. But his sons did not follow Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's a prophet, and God doesn't seem to be calling another prophet. And so Samuel puts his sons in charge. And his sons go, hey, this religion thing, we can make some money off of this. Does anyone know how to make a TV show? <laughs> There's no TV, so they can't do that. And they start uh, acting in a way that's displeasing. So the elders of Israel gather together and they come to Samuel, not at Beersheba, at another place called Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, <laughs> which is always a great way to begin. Look, Samuel, this might be the last time we meet up. <laughs> Like, we're looking at you, it does not look good. <laughs> you are old. Samuel says, thanks, I didn't know that. And your sons do not follow your ways. As if you are old doesn't hurt. Now he criticizes Samuel's sons. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you that they have rejected, but it is me, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them and warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his right. If we just kind of sit in this passage for a second, you can see God kind of being patient with Samuel at the beginning, like, Samuel, don't worry, he's not rejecting you, he's rejecting me. It's not about you, you're the prophet that I've chosen, but the people are having trouble serving God as their king. And then you can see God being a little frustrated, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today. You can see God saying, look, it's not you, it's me they hate. And it's not our fault, these people are idiots. <laughs> right? And you can see, God, God can't say that, because you can't say that about your kids. You shouldn't say that about your kids. <laughs> but, but Samuel actually is there experiencing God's frustration but he's frustrated because he loves them. My kids make mistakes sometimes, and it's frustrating. My kids' friends make mistakes sometimes. I don't care that much. Like, I'm sad for them. I'm like, no, that's... But it doesn't keep me up at night, right? <laughs> Maybe it should. Maybe I'm heartless. <laughs> but it is, there's a different level of frustration with those you love dearly and seeing them go the wrong way, friends that you love dearly going the wrong way, versus a stranger who's going the wrong way, and you feel nothing about that stranger. God feels frustration because of his love for his people. And so he says, all right, we're going to give them what they want, but I think you should tell them what they're going to get when they get what they want. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. I didn't put it on the screen. I'm just going to read through it quickly. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And this is what Samuel says, the warning from God. <clears throat> he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses, the most advanced military uh, that existed. 
and they will run in front of his chariots. And some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers because he's going to be sexist. Did you see that, ladies? <clears throat> he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage uh, and give it to his officials and his attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will selves become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the Lord. Uh, sorry, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer your prayer in that day. God says to these people, hold on. God says to these people, everything about what you want is going to go horribly. He introduces a 10% tax that the king is going to take on you from everything that you have. And it's going to be the best 10% of the things that you have. It's kind of ironic at tax time, we're all sitting here like only 10%, like we'll take that tax, right? Like, and there's no income tax and there's no property tax, like it's just a 10%, oh, we'll take that tax, you know? No sales tax, nothing, okay, we'll take that 10% tax. We want to go back to the Old Testament. But this tax is new to the people. And the tax is going to be taken not to advance the country, but to be given to the friends of the guy in charge. To be given to the friends of the ruler, of the king, to his attendants. And he's warning them that there's going to become a system where there's people who are taxed and people who receive. And right now, all of Israel is in one society, and what they're asking is to create two. A ruling class, a rich class, and a serving class, or a slave class, that will serve the ruling class. And God says to them, this is actually what you're asking for. In every other country around you, even though you think, oh, look at their king, it looks so opulent, look at that castle, look at where he rules, look at that throne, everything about it is beautiful. God is saying you're not seeing what functions behind that. You're not seeing, when you're looking at what's beautiful, you're not looking at the poverty that it creates in order to make that beauty function. You're asking to be put into that level of poverty. In 1 Samuel, it, it continues. I'll put the rest on the screen. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. We definitely want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go up before us and fight our battle. Up to this point, God had been going out before them. God had been fighting their battles. But apparently, God wasn't doing a good enough job. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. That sentence is the moment that God gives up. It like, it's, it's weird because you don't read your Bible and go, oh, that's the saddest sentence in the whole Bible. But that right there is the saddest sentence, in this, at least in this part, of, you know, up to when Jesus dies is the saddest sentence in the Bible up to this point. All right, they don't want me to rule. 
Let's give them their king. Let's give them their monarchy. If you've ever loved someone who walks away from their relationship with you, at some point, you say this sentence. All right, let them have what they want. And if you're in a relationship with someone, maybe you're married to someone, maybe you're a, a parent, maybe you're a friend or a, a teacher or a coach or, or a, a manager at your work and you have an employee that you're trying to help and trying to mentor or you have a, a relationship, any relationship where you're pouring yourself into someone else and they reject that, at some point you say this sentence, all right, it's not me they want. That's what they want, and so I'm going to let them have that. And there's this grieving that goes on in your heart. And then there's this weird choice that you have of what does our relationship look like moving forward. Because in order to protect ourselves, sometimes we try to not care, right? Because the, when we care, it continues to hurt. And so we try to build like a, maybe a little more of a callus in our heart this is the temptation. Obviously, at the end of this little sentence, I'm going to say that's a bad idea. But we try to just survive. We harden our hearts a little bit. And so, and like, I'm not, even, I'm not even blaming in that. Like, it's a survival mechanism. I can't function because the level of pain that I feel over this uh, person choosing what they're choosing hurts to that level. And so we kind of try to move forward in our life and we do what we have to do in order to move forward. But thankfully, thankfully, God, his heart does not harden. His heart does not harden towards his people. He actually loves the kings and has, as much as possible, a particular relationship with them. To where, like, King David writes most of the book of Psalms in your Bible uh, King David is said to know God face to face. We know God, but do we know, like knowing God face to face, the level of intimacy that that gathers? There's actually a story a little bit later I'm going to put on the screen, is 2 Chronicles. After Samuel, there's two books in the Bible, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. They tell a lot of the same stories, but it's kind of the beginnings of this nation state, this monarchy. Uh, and so in Second Chronicles 13, this is a strange story, and I'm going to cut it off, but uh, there's actually a battle between one army of 400,000 uh, 400, men and another army of 800,000 men, and the 800,000 army splits up and goes around behind so that they can attack from both sides, but the 400,000 army is on God's side and calls out to God and routes them, and 500,000 people die in this story. 500,000 people die in this story. Uh, from the larger army. And so it's just really violent time that has entered into uh, the nation of Israel. So in the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, Abijah became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem three years. And the Israel, so you know, is kind of split into a northern and southern kingdom. His mother's name was Mekah and the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. There was war between Abijah and Jero Jeroboam. These are actually important because you can actually track and know who these people are. That's why those words are included in the Bible, not just to embarrass pastors. Uh, Abijah went into battle with an army of 400,000 able fighting men, and Jeroboam drew up a battle line with 800,000 able troops. And Abijah stood on the mount 
Zemaram in the hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Jeroboam and all Israel, listen to me. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt, which is a, a covenant of salt would be a binding covenant forever. Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. And some worthless scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam, of son of Solomon, when he was young and indecisive and not smart enough or not strong enough to resist them. And now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants. You are indeed a vast army and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made to be your gods. There's this, do you see what he calls the line of David right there? The kingdom of the Lord. In this violent time and in this giant battle, Abijah, in this story, actually recognizes that God didn't abandon the people, even when the people did all they could to abandon God. Like, if there's something that I think is comforting in this story, is that the people, the, all the people, as a group, reject God, and God says, I don't think it's a good idea for you to reject me. And they say, no, we think it's a great idea to reject you. We are going our own way on this thing. God doesn't abandon the people. It's kind of like, I think a lot of people feel a ton of stress that they want to do God's will, right? Like, I want to do the thing God wants me to do. I want to do the thing God wants me to do. But there's this weird fear involved with it where you're like, if I don't do the things God wants me to do, then God won't be with me, or God will bail on me, or God will, like, be mad at me or something. Well, when we read the story, we see God being frustrated, we see God being disappointed. We see God giving up. And yet he does not abandon. He does not fail. Like it's basically impossible for you to push God away from being present in your life. And I mean, you can be like a, the king of the atheists and God is right beside you, loving you, a little frustrated, but he's loving you, he's walking beside you, he wants everything good for you, he wants you to have a relationship with him, he wants you to live for his glory. That's what God wants. And if you're a Christian person that sins, God doesn't abandon you. God doesn't bail on you. God doesn't move away from you because he doesn't want to be associated with you because you are a terrible Christian. God stands right beside you. Because even when we reject God's plan, God still uses us, God still stays with us, God still believes in us. Now, that can be abused, can it? You can be like, well, I don't want to, like I know this is a sin, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know God's not allowed to bail on me. But God doesn't save you. God doesn't uh, pull you out of the consequences or the results of your choices. He isn't required to do that. People will say to me uh, oftentimes, hey, this is what's happening, or this is what's happening with my friend. Does God still love them? I'm like, well, yes, it would be impossible for God not to love them. God loves everyone. This means, though, that God loves all the people in heaven. God also loves all the people in hell. I don't understand that, but it's true. 
God doesn't stop loving you because you decide to not engage in relationship with God. So the question of does God love me should be a moot point, and you should never get to the point where you're like, mm, does God love me or not? Does God love this person? What about this person? Well, what about this person? They're really actually bad. God loves them like a crazy person. It's ridiculous. And if you or I were God, things would be much different and not good at all. <laughs> but the nature of God is so great that he sees every person as an instrument of bringing glory to himself. And he never gives up. Now, if God loves, it doesn't mean that, that God is being glorified by or that God is saving or that God is in relationship with a person. So there's a comfort to it, but that doesn't turn into like some kind of cheap grace where, well, God has to forgive me if I ask later, so as long as I don't die while I'm doing this sin, we're good. Because that's what God wants to have with you is a relationship, not a legal standing. Not a, a, like a, a courtroom battle where you say, well, technically I should get off on this because uh, you died on the cross and rose again, so I'm provided for my sins and you can't get around that, God. It's kind of like, it should be a trigger warning in our heads that any time we think we've got God in the corner, or like I've outsmarted God, probably not. <laughs> That's probably a sign that whoever you think is God isn't, because you've decided you are. <laughs> and so there's this movement uh, in the book of Chronicles towards, uh, sorry, in the book of Samuel towards having a king, and then things get very, very violent, and society begins to stretch in, in a class system kind of way, and the people are killing each other between the nation of Israel because it has a civil war and with the outside countries. And then, uh, but even in that, we see that God has decided to use the way that the people are doing things. Uh, let me say this. This is even more convicting. I would bet you that there are things about the Western church and if you want to be worse, things about the grove that God is not particularly down with. God might say, you know what? Y'all didn't hear me, but I don't like electric guitars. <laughs> and we're like, I hear you, God, but we don't need that action. <laughs> we are going with the electric guitars. <laughs> I thought you know, I'm being silly. God loves electric It's in the Bible. But it's true, like, like David played the harp in such a way that evil spirits were like interacting with stuff. And so if you're like, oh, I don't understand electric car kind of devil music, yes, all right? <laughs> a little theology in the middle of a sermon. So. <laughs> okay, so when we think, uh, and, and it's also silly, I bet you there's actually some real core things in the way that we do things that God's like, ah, that's a miss. I bet you the sometimes that we pander to consumerism in the Western church. I bet you the sometimes that we go with the culture instead of going with God's leading. I bet you there are. And if we knew them, if we saw them, we wouldn't do them. But I bet you there's times when we're not living perfectly in God's will. And yet, there are people all the time having their lives changed and meeting God in the Western church, in the, our church, at the Grove, you and I, life changed 
because of this group of people who are imperfectly doing their best to follow God, and God's taking that imperfect ability and making something beautiful out of it. This is why it's funny when people criticize the church. You know what? The church is awful. It's full of awful people. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> like 100%. Ours might be the worst. You should come. It'll give you plenty of fodder. <laughs> like we have hypocrites coming out our ears. I'm one of them. I say I, I want to be this, and I never live up to it. Right? I never do. Well, maybe for moments, in little moments. I'm, I'm like holy for a moment. And then I think, I'm so holy. Dang it, pride. All right? It catches me. And when we begin to think that we need to create some kind of perfect image so that the world accepts us, they're not rejecting us. People that reject... Okay, this is not in my notes, but we're going to say this. People that reject the local church on the basis of the local church are not rejecting the local church. They're angry that a God would be so loving that it would use people that suck as much as we do. They're angry that God would be that gracious because they have standards for behavior that they should have. And God isn't holding their standard. And so they say, we're going to live like this. We're going to live over here because I'm upset because I can't handle that level of grace. There should be some standard to it. There should be a line that we make people hold to. And it's not that we don't have standards in the church, right? Like if you are convicted of certain crimes, you're not allowed near the children's ministry. That's, we're not going to be like, oh, it's all grace over there. No, like we have a responsibility to steward children's lives. But there is no line that you can cross that eliminates you from being allowed to have a relationship with God. There might be consequences to your sins here on earth. But there is no sinner. The worst sinner is not disqualified from God's love and the possibility of God's grace in their life. The worst. Like there are people who genuinely should go to hell and God forgives them. And what it means to be a Christian is to think that I'm a lot like those people, but God forgives me. It's not to be like, well, I'm better than those people. Thank God I'm not like those people. That's actually Phariseeism. Uh, like that's the, the trip up of the Pharisees when they interacted with Jesus was they thought they were on good standing with God. And so what do we need Jesus for? And so the Western church ends up not actually needing Jesus. All right, now I'm ranting. Oh, good Lord. I'm going to skip Psalms and we're going to go straight to, to uh, uh, okay, we're going to skip over some stuff. Things happen, la, 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 la. Okay, Jesus. Whew. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jesus shows up, so we have... <laughs> I'm preaching the whole Bible every week, people. Come on. Uh, so we have theocracy, then we have the time of monarchy, which ends up in this 400-year silence that God uh, just doesn't speak to the people at all as they're moved into exile, and they're moved all like there's the Old Testament prophets. After the last word of the Old Testament, it's 400 years before Jesus shows up, before uh, the New Testament begins, this 400 years of silence. So in Luke chapter 4, uh, Mark 1, and, and, and the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus actually speaks to what he is doing on earth. And Luke chapter 4 is a game changer, maybe the happiest sentence in the whole Bible. He went to Nazareth, being Jesus, where he had been brought up, went to his hometown. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. The local synagogue would be where the Jewish people gathered for church on their Sabbath day, which was Saturday, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So you know, Jesus' family is here. This is where he grew up, and Jesus came home. That's my boy. That's our Jesus. And Jesus, hey, you're back in town. Why don't you do the scripture reading today? This is going to be great, right? Like, they're so excited to have Jesus back in town. And Jesus is acting a little weird. He's wandering around the countryside developing disciples. We're not sure what Jesus is doing, but he's home. And we're so glad he's home. So Jesus reads the scripture from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he's saying is, this is the time that God has sent me to change everything. This is known as a messianic like passage, that this is going to be, this scripture is about the man who is coming, who is going to restore Israel to its glory. And the people wanted to be saved, not from their sins, but from the Roman oppression. Jesus rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, which would be like he would sit down in the chair at the front, or sit down in maybe his chair, but, but they would have like, okay, we read it, now we're going to discuss it. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue is looking at Jesus, and he begins by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He sits down and says, just so you know, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus, we know you're home. <laughs> like, we get that you were away for a bit and you're home. We're really excited you're home. Um, what you're saying isn't just wacky, it's kind of heresy. And they actually take Jesus out to the cliff to throw him off it. Like, no joke. They're like, all right, Jesus, we don't know what's going on in your life. We've decided to throw you off the cliff. <laughs> like, their solution to this level of heresy is literally like the death penalty. And the Bible says somehow Jesus just walks out between them. They got so, I guess, like excited about killing someone for heresy, they forgot who they were trying to kill for heresy, and Jesus actually just walks away from the crowd. Apparently not going home anymore. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and says, Hey, everyone, guess what? The king is here. <laughs> I mean, seriously, could you imagine? Pastor James goes back to northern Ontario they ask him to speak, and he's like, oh, I've got a sermon for you. Guess what, everybody? I'm in charge now. I'm the pastor here. <laughs> I'm betting there's elders in my local Lakeshore Evangelical Missionary Church who would say, nope, actually, we have a contract signed with this guy. Um, sound guy, could you turn the mics off? <laughs> we actually operate by a book of the discipline. Uh, like our uh, church bylaws and stuff like that. And in there, we have a group called trustees who have two responsibilities. They're the, in charge of the legal corporation of the church, insurance, property, those kinds of things. Then they're also responsible for the theology that comes out of the pulpit. And they're granted the ability to remove the person who is preaching heresy from this stage. So we have trustees, five, six of them. And I try to pick dudes who I think could tackle me. <laughs> Because I'm like, or ladies, who I think could tackle me. <laughs> because it's, it doesn't have to be men, but I'm just saying. Uh, we're not, you're not tackling, okay. 
Victoria 100% could take me. So, so, but when we, if someone, like, particularly it means if there was a guest preacher who was doing heresy, someone who stood up and said, I have a special message from God, I'm the Messiah, we would take that person out. We would say, all right, sound guy, we need to turn that off. And then we'd come up and politely escort them, or impolitely, as required, escort them off the stage. And we'd say, let's have the band come back out and get back to some Orthodox Christianity. But we have, and the church has always had, and the people of God have always had that, a recognition that when someone stands up and says, I'm God, they're not. And so when Jesus stands up and says, I'm God, it has got to be a striking moment. And then Jesus continually refers to what he's doing on earth as kingdom operation. Whereas we mostly think of Jesus as dying for our sins so that we can individually have salvation. Jesus refers to his work. Uh, this is in, in Mark chapter 1, if we flip through the slides. Uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus' cousin, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. His message was, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, then in Matthew chapter 12, but it, if it, Jesus is driving out evil spirits, and it says, but if, the spirit, it if, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying the kingdom of God is here in this moment. Then he instructs us to pray with the Lord's Prayer, with this line in the Lord's Prayer, which lots of people have said the Lord's Prayer and maybe not noticed this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father, is in, in, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We actually pray in the Lord's Prayer for the kingdom of God to be established on earth in the same way it is in heaven. The operation of Christians is establishing the kingdom of God. Now Jesus himself, when confronted with these questions by Pontius Pilate, actually has a whole conversation. And in multiple times, Jesus actually says, my kingdom is not about this world. It's kind of like there are kingdoms here, there are governments here, and then Jesus' world is just above that. And so Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, can function in any sort of governmental or religious structure that happens to be on earth. Jesus can function in our democracy, Jesus can function in a monarchy from Europe. The church functions incredibly in communist China, where Christianity is basically illegal. It's government controlled. Christianity, because the kingdom of God is above all of these things, isn't needing a particular governmental system or ruler in an earthly kingdom in order for the kingdom of God to exist. And so for the kingdom of God to exist, it is where God's will is being done in increasing measure. And the kingdom of God exists and moves forward in two places, in us and outside of us. And the kingdom of God grows more and more inside of us as the will of God becomes more and more the standard and the system by which we live. When God rules, I'm going to say, in your heart, when God rules in the core of who you are, the kingdom of God is growing inside of you. And when the people of God are working in systems and in structures in our society to bring about peace and justice 
and love, then we're showing our obedience and allegiance to a greater king than the king who happens, or the president, or the monarchy, or the communist emperor, or whatever, like whatever Putin is. Who the, those are not the rulers of our hearts. Those are not the rulers of who is who we are at the core of our being. Because we've given that obedience and allegiance to Jesus. See, the Bible actually even tells us to obey your government because it's going to make life a lot easier. But when there are places where the government is clearly opposed to the will of God, the people of God throughout all history have chosen to obey God and not the earthly rulers that don't obey God. Because we believe in Christocracy that Jesus is king. And it isn't that Jesus was king either, because at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, one of the coolest scriptures says about Jesus that coming out, this is metaphorical too, so you know, Jesus doesn't have like a secret sword in his mouth. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. I'm going to read that again just because that's an experience. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has this name written. This is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, for all eternity, from the time when he established himself on earth until forever, is king and he rules and there will never be an authority greater than him and there will never be an authority that uh, supersedes him or that undercuts him or that affects his rule and his reign ever. What glorifies God? When God creates everything, he glorifies himself through everything. And Jesus, who has no beginning, but his earthly body existed in a particular time, but Jesus also has no end, sits on the throne in heaven, ruling. He's in charge, because that glorifies God. This rule of God frees us from the need to compare ourselves to others and the need to be like the culture around us. It frees us from the temptation to say, well, all the other organizations have this structure. They have a king. They're doing it this way. When God says, don't do it that way, that way will lead to destruction and bad things. It's actually freeing for us because we know Jesus sits on the throne and he never abandons us. The king overall deserves our allegiance, deserves our obedience because it's better for us to give our obedience, to give our allegiance to God above all, to God above all things. The comfort and the freedom in that is immense. Because at least in this country, and I don't vote here, I just observe, but in this country, every four years, half of everybody is disappointed. It's kind of weird. I come from a country with a whole bunch of different parties, and they don't really matter because we vote them, and then they ask permission to the queen to be in charge, and the queen says yes or no. She always says yes, but whatever. <laughs> but it is like half of us are going to be disappointed. And if it affects our belief 
in the rule and the reign of God, then what we've actually done is revealed that we have something sitting just above. Because we compare ourselves and we say, look how those Christians are functioning. I want to function like those Christians. This is why you can say that the result of whatever comes up, I may be disappointed, but I haven't lost hope. I may not be a huge fan, but I haven't forgotten my purpose. I'm moving forward because I operate in the kingdom of God. And we don't have passports made out of paper like the rest of all the countries around. Somebody invented a Christian flag, which might be the second most ridiculous thing ever. Like, what are we going to use that for? Like, when we invade hell? You know, like, it'll just catch on fire and then that's gone. <laughs> but there is... I shouldn't rip on that. Like, I apologize if you're really into the Christian flag. I'm not. I just don't understand. <laughs> but when we, when we begin to think that Christianity should function in ways of power and control in our system, we're actually asking for something that God says you don't actually need that because you have something that they don't have. And that's the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and so you don't actually need those things. God asks for our obedience and our allegiance, and we give those to Him because of our relationship with Him, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we think we deserve something, but because the love of God is overwhelming us to the point that we can't possibly ever uh, give God more than He deserves. We can give Him our whole self, and He deserves every bit of it because He deserves all of the glory. We're going to stand and pray. We're just going to sing one song. And, uh, but I think God deserves our glory and deserves our praise in these moments. And just, if you can think in thankfulness terms and the gratefulness that you experience knowing that no matter how bad you mess it up or no matter how bad the world around you messes up, God is right there with you and will give everything in order for you to be able to be with Him. Let me pray for us as the band comes out. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us that we don't deserve and that we didn't earn. For a simple sacrifice, God, of, of you taking time to interact with your creation. We don't deserve to even know of God. We don't deserve to be chosen by God. We don't deserve, and we haven't proven ourselves, even to be a near what a perfect servant of you should be, God. And yet you promise to never abandon us. You promise to extend your rule in our hearts, in our lives, and in all creation. And so we pray as Jesus prayed to our God in heaven. May your name be holy here. And may your kingdom come and your will be done. And may it be on earth as it is in heaven.